I'm going to read a couple of questions that we have from people who have submitted them, who are usually here on the fireside chat, but not with us today. One of them is from Corinna from Greece. She was recently at one of the immersives in the UK, and she wants to thank you and everyone who was at the immersive, who was so supportive of her. She had some help with your advice uh, for her panic attacks. Um, it was difficult for her to stay home alone. She has no problems at all at the time being. Uh, this has happened um, suddenly after many years, after trying everything, and so she thanks you. Um, I think the love I experienced there, the supportive words of Tom when he told me that I have the courage uh, but could do the work. Um, the healing course, when she started towards the room, she felt a huge amount of emotion. And um, <clears throat> and felt that uh, this was a great experience for her, one that she'll never forget. So she thanks everyone from the bottom of her heart. She has a question as well. She's now trying to conquer some more of her fears. One of them is driving alone. So she's tried driving alone, uh, little places, just around the house, uh, with a friend on the phone. Uh, she tried driving a little further, but got a little bit panicked. Um, and so she's uh, also afraid of something happening to her uh, and getting a panic attack while driving. So do you have any suggestions on how to manage to do this without having a panic attack? This is sort of another step for her. Okay. Um, you know, like, like most of these things that, that fears that control our daily life, one of the ways to work toward getting free of them is to just do a little more each day. Push yourself just another step. But don't push yourself too fast. Don't push yourself too hard. If you have a fear... Um, you know, and I would include any kind of phobia in that. If you have a phobia of some sort and it's, it falls in the same category, you push yourself just the point where you're starting to feel uncomfortable and then go back. And eventually that point where you begin to feel uncomfortable will eventually become comfortable because you've been there so many times. Then you push it just a little further until that point becomes comfortable and then a little further. So take your time. It's not a problem you need to solve in a week. It's the one you need to work up on slowly. So I would say, uh, you know, drive around. Maybe it's just around the block. And you feel comfortable with that? Good. Drive around the block a bunch of times till you feel really comfortable with it. Then drive around, you know, the block and maybe go one more block and then come back until you feel comfortable with that. Just keep working at it a little bit at a time. It's, uh, it's a matter of building your confidence. If you, you know, if you're afraid of, of deep water, a good way to learn how to swim is not to just dump in the deep end. That's a traumatic way to learn how to swim. You get in at the shallow end, you put a rubber ducky around your waist, you know, you put little armbands on that are blown up, and then you, you get used to the water first before you even try to swim. Just get used to being in the water, and so on. And it takes a long time 
before you get rid of the fears to the point where you can really swim. So take it easy. Don't push yourself. Don't think badly about yourself. Don't feel like you're somehow failed or unable or dysfunctional because you have this fear. People have fears. The idea is that if you are, if you are focused and intent on getting rid of them, you will. And if it takes a long time, that's okay. Take as long as it needs. Just keep working on them. Don't give up. Don't say, oh, well, you know, it's too much time, too much work. I can't do that. Don't push yourself too much, just to the point of feeling a little uncomfortable and back up. And eventually that uncomfortable place will become comfortable after you've been there a hundred times. So just work on it slowly. Take your time. All right, Tom. And the second part of your question, you've, you've answered uh, a few things in that second part, taking it uh, slowly and a few steps at a time. She's traveling to Athens for her book presentation. And even though she has conquered her fear of being alone at her home, she's going to be staying in a new place in Athens that a friend has provided for, and she'll be staying alone. How can she deal with that new situation? She's worried that a new environment is maybe different. Do you think it's a good uh, idea for her to attempt to uh, conquer this well, in this I, uh, new city? I'd put this in the same form that I that I just answered her first question. You should not go out further than what you're comfortable doing. If you go too far, then you're just going to end up, you know, making things worse. You're going to get into things that are too too hard for you to handle. So just take small steps. Don't don't go too far. Now you can challenge yourself, but the more worried you are that you're going to have a panic attack, the more likely a panic attack is. So if you're feeling really, really worried about it, then you're increasing the probability you're going to have it. When you have enough confidence that you don't really worry about it, then it's less likely that you're going to have it. So if you do things that are too big of a stretch, then you're going to be more worried, therefore more likely to have a problem. So you just have to stretch out slowly, carefully, and you know, if you can, make sure you have a, you know, you have a safety net, you know, somebody there that can help you out. So if that's a problem and it's a new place, well, try to make sure there's somebody going to be with you or go with you so that you can do the new place. You uh, put a net under yourself and getting up on that tightrope to try to walk it isn't so scary because, you know, if you fall off, there's be something there to catch you. So if you can't manage to have a net and you're really afraid of, of, you know, what might happen, there's a high probability that your fears will come true because you will make them come true with your fear. Getting rid of fear is a slow process. You can, you can go too slow and, and uh, you can also go too fast. So just stay comfortable. Don't push yourself into places that you can't deal with. That just sets you back. You can't, if you can't build a net under yourself with other people, then you'll have to decide how frightened are you if you're really really frightened about it then i'd say don't go because you're going to create a problem if you're not so frightened about it and you think you probably can do all right well then you maybe you should go and meet the challenge but 
Take a measure of your own fear. If you're terribly fearful about it, there's a high probability you'll run into a problem. Uh, hello, Tom. Thank you. Hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Yes, I don't have uh, the camera on. It doesn't work here now, but uh, thank you very much. I would like to ask, um, it seems like uh, uh, when I try to find someone to to come with me in Athens, uh, all the time something happens to that new city. It's, it's just I was thinking to move there, but uh, now at least uh, I'm thinking for a few days for the presentation of the book. So I have to go for the presentation of the book uh, because it's arranged the date and everything. And uh, uh, it seems like uh, I feel like LCS is not helping me to find a person. <laughs> and it's like it's pushing me to um, defeat this fear. Um Yes, I'm scared. I'm scared to stay alone there. I imagine myself already uh, being there at that house alone in the dark with my dog in my arms and uh, being panicked. So uh, so I'm not, I don't feel sure about it, no. Uh, but uh, it seems like uh, something uh, uh, from the universe is not letting me to find a person to to stay there with me. And at the same time, I'm scared that if I find a person to stay there with me, maybe then again, I get myself trapped to not be able to stay alone in a new place. So I'm in, in a big dilemma like this. I'm trying to think what you said, that uh, that I have the courage. Uh, yes, I don't know. <laughs> Do you think that, can you see, can you see, uh, can you take information from, from LCS or something? <laughs> yes. But Karina, it's your choice. So you have to make these choices. And how you make your choices are your own free will. How that yeah. works out just depends on you and your choices. You know, it's not something that uh, anybody can predict exactly. The way where one works with things like this, there's a phobia called agrophobia. And agrophobia is basically fear of the marketplace. And many people get this, this phobia where they are afraid to go out in you know, they have panic attacks, actually, like you. They're afraid to go out into the world. It's a very common phobia. Thousands and thousands of people have it. It's um, more likely that females get it than males, but males do get it as well. And there are standard processes. If you look up agoraphobia on the Internet, you will find there are certain processes you go through to get over it. And basically those processes are to build your confidence slowly, Slowly and slowly. Now, when you feel you have the courage to do it, then do it. If you feel you don't have the courage to do it and it's going to be awful, then you probably ought to stay home or cancel the event. Because if when you have an attack, that makes it more likely that you'll have another one because that attack creates more fear. And the more fear you have creates the likelihood of another attack. So you're just going to have to slowly work your way out of that fear. And um, it's not rational. You know, you can tell yourself rationally, oh, nothing's going to happen. You know, I can go do this. There isn't a big problem. But that's your intellect talking. That doesn't necessarily mean that's the way you're going to feel. Yeah. So you'll, you'll just have to look inside your mind and see whether or not you think it's a good thing to do. And if it isn't a good thing to do, don't feel bad about yourself. Just say, well, I'm not ready yet. i got to work on being ready. And uh, come up with some other kind of thing. Um, um, 
you know, some other way, some other place that you can, you can maybe fly there, drive there, and then do it and come back the same day. Or who knows? Maybe you can do your opening electronically on Skype. A lot of people now have meetings that uh, are virtual meetings where they go on a, like Zoom or one of the uh, teleconferencing softwares that uh, are available. So look for a, look for an alternative, but it's just up to you. If you feel the courage and you feel like I want to do this, I need to do it and I'm going to do it. Well, then go do it. Have the courage. And, uh, perhaps if you, uh, starting to feel nervous, uh, call somebody up, have a conversation with them. That may help you feel better or bring along your favorite teddy bear. You know, that might help keep you company. My wife does that. She travels all the time with a little, you know, with a little toy animal and she doesn't bring one with her. She buys a couple of them while she's out just because she has then a bunch of little friends that travel with her in her suitcase. And it just makes her miss her dogs a little less and she feels good about it. So, you know, she's, I probably shouldn't say, tell you how old she is, but she's old enough not to, uh, you know, uh, have that as a habit, but it works for her and it's good for her to do that. So, you know, you may find other ways, other means that you can use that bring you some comfort. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, re- I remember a movie about a guy got stranded on an island and uh, he survived it because he made friends with a soccer ball. Yeah. His name was Wilson. So, uh, you know, something like that can be helpful. Something that you can, uh, you know, if that, you know, it doesn't have to be a ball. It could be a teddy bear, you know, something that you can connect with, that you can talk to, that can be a friend in time of need. Well, that'll work too. Just whatever works. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Corinna. Um, I will go ahead and read the questions I have now that have been submitted by others, if none of the rest of you have any other questions. This question was submitted by Mark H. Uh, Tom, I've been practicing a method of self-inquiry where I shift my attention from my egoic thoughts and fears to a state of thoughtless awareness or point consciousness. Early into shifting my attention to this, my ears start ringing. It's a high-pitched tone that is comforting in a weird way in that I can focus on the sound as a way to drown out the mind and intellect. Can you explain what is going on? Is one part of his question. And what does NBC say about attention? Is attention and intention the same thing in MBT? Okay, um, you meditate and you you have a ringing in your ears. That's just a you know it's a it's a physical interpretation of the mental state that you're in, and for some reason you know a lot of people get these sorts of things. You just need to let it be. If it's comforting and not bothering. Just let it be there. Listen to it. Uh, don't pay much attention to it. And eventually it'll just go away because you won't need it or you won't interpret that anymore. But it's not a problem. It's, uh, 
it's the way you're interpreting the data you're getting. You interpret it as this high-pitched thing. I don't know exactly, you know, why you do that, but I do hear people who have all sorts of things that happen to them. Sometimes it's ringing in the ears. Sometimes it's things they see. Um, it's, I went through a time in my own meditation, you know, many, many years ago, <laughs> in a galaxy far, far away, right? I uh, remember that I would get a, an itch. I have an itch right here, you know, my nose up here on my forehead. And as soon as I'd get into a good meditation state, this itch would just get intense, so intense, you know, that it kind of blocked out everything else. And I try to make it go away. And, of course, the more I I thought about it, the more I was aware of it, the worse it would get. And the lesson for me was just to let it go. Let it be. Ignore it. Stop processing it and let it itch as much as it wanted, but stop processing it. And after I got the hang of that, then it went away and I never had itches after that. It was just something that that was an annoying thing. The sound is not annoying for you. So it's just one of those markers that people get. Maybe it's for you. It's a marker that you're in a good meditation state. So when you hear that, you know uh, you're in a good meditation state. And maybe that's why you're using it. Uh, so I can't really explain exactly what's going on because it's very personal. Many people don't have any such markers, and there's all sorts of other markers that they can't have. So it's it's a personal thing. And what does MBT say about attention? And is intention and attention the same thing? No, not at all. Attention is what you focus on. Okay, it's it's the data that you focus on. Our attention tends to create our reality. You know, we 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 pay attention to some data and we ignore other data. So our attention helps us define what it is that's in our, our reality and what's not. Um, attention is, is uh, one thing. Intention is another. And intention is your motivation, the why of how you, of what you're doing, why you're doing it. What is the source? Why are you doing it? What brings you to this point to make this choice or to do this thing? Or have this experience. What's the, what's the reason behind it all? That is really what your intention is. You wouldn't do things if you had no intention. If there was no intention whatsoever, then you would not make any choices. You'd have no, no action, no function. So you make choices and there's a reason why you made that choice. It's going to someplace. There's some, reason for it and that reason is the intention behind the choice all right tom our next question comes from ingo on developing male traits my question relates to masculinity as far as i know a man does not necessarily become a man when he is only physically grown up and that a young man needs the help of older men to, to develop male values for example, there are into initiation rituals for young men in so-called primitive tribes where they have to sit in the dark cave for one night and face the feelings that come up. Then they are accepted into the circle of men and instructed by the older men. What is your opinion about the development of masculine values? Does this happen by itself or is it a process that needs some guidance? Well, I guess it's all of the above. It can happen by itself. Um, 
it's affected a great deal by one's culture. What is defined as masculine is often uh, um, has several sources. One is your culture. What your culture tells you is masculine behavior. And that tends to define masculinity as far as your interaction, your social interactions within the culture. But then you also have instincts that are uh, male instincts, and those also define masculinity. But now the rights that you're talking about, those often are tools that make a clear definition between boy and man, you know, child and adult. And if we don't have that clear distinction, then one just kind of eases into the other. There is no clear distinction between child and adult or boy and man or girl and woman. In our culture, we don't have the go sit in a cave or, you know, jump off a platform and, you know, get snatched up by a vine that's tied around your ankle or, you know, you got to go out and fight a grizzly bear or something. You know, we don't have that kind of a, of a uh, rite of passage. Um, we basically just grow up on our own. It's helpful, yes, if you have guidance, if you have good role models. That's immensely helpful. But if you don't, you'll figure it out on your own one way or another. It's, uh, it's, it's defines itself as you go. I guess uh, if you don't have good role models, then you'll have a harder time than if you do, but you can get good role models, you know, from a, from an uncle or a father or a grandfather or from the television set from Mr. Rogers, you know, you can get role models uh, from, Various sources. So it's, it's helpful to have that, but not necessary. The culture kind of leads us to its own definition of what's masculine. And if that is crosswise with our instincts, then that makes us uneasy, gives us stress and makes us a little neurotic. If it's in consonance with our instincts, then we feel whole and, and centered and, and, uh, we're, we're clear on who and what we are and why we are that way. So that's one of the reasons I, I'm writing this gender book, because often our cultural uh, requirements are not in consonance with our instincts. And as those two get out of, you know, get sideways to each other, then it creates issues and we no longer know who we are or why we are. So that's the, that's really about that book. So, it's helpful to have good advice from a, and a good role model, but it's not essential. If you don't have a, a present role model, then you will pick your role models out of the, you know, off the TV or, uh, you know, out of your culture. Not necessarily a great way to go about it, but we get free will to make choices and we can become a low entropy, high quality consciousness if we work on it, no matter where we start from. So some of us start more advantaged or disadvantaged than others. Some of us come in more with more or less quality when we start, and everybody's on a path to solve their own problems and, and learn to grow up. All right. Thank you, Tom. We have one other member of our audience who would like to ask a question. Eric, are you on microphone? Sorry, Donna. Yeah, I am on microphone. Can you hear okay. me? Okay. Yeah, yes. hear you very clearly. Okay, good. Go ahead. 
Tom, um, I wanted to ask you a question about connecting to the larger consciousness system because I had that experience and uh, the experience for me was basically it came down to the realization that everything, there's only existence and there's a, a sense of total completeness, completeness and perfection and love and it felt great, but then at one point my left brain started to kick in and basically I was wondering how is it possible for everything to be perfect and complete, yet at the same time, what about all this fear? What about all this, what about the evolution thing? You know, it doesn't make sense for something to be perfect on the one hand, yet to evolve on the other hand. It seems to be a paradox, and I've, I wonder if you could, if what's you, what's your experience with it, and if you if you can maybe solve this paradox for me. Okay, I think the answer to that is it's a perfect evolution trainer, but it's evolving. You know, you, the, the, what takes place inside is we have to evolve, we have to change, we have to grow up, but the process in which we've done that, the process, the interactive process by which you uh, accumulate your experience and from that experience you make better choices, that is the perfect process. So the process that's set up for your evolution, the way things work, the the way the larger conscious systems works, the way we as individuated units of conscious work, that system has been evolving toward optimization for a very long, 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 long time to the point that when you meet it and you know it and you experience it, it feels perfect. It feels done. It feels, you know, that there, it is everything and is everything is perfectly the way it's supposed to be. But that that's a, a thing in motion. At any particular instant, you might think that it is just the way it's supposed to be or it's just the way it is. It is just the way it is. And in the next moment, you get to make choices. And now you can improve yourself. And after you've improved yourself, that state, the whole state is just as it should be. So it's not that the content is done. The content is continu continually evolving. But the structure in which that content is defined is has evolved to a very high degree. I think maybe that will be the, the thing. So, you know, you could think of our own evolution here on the planet. At any one time, everything is in some sort of state of balance or in the process of being balanced. You know, if you have too many uh, deer and too few wolves, well, that gets out of balance and the deer begin starving to death and getting diseases and other things because there's too many of them and they're too crowded and it gets out of balance, then that starts to go into balance. So at any particular moment, it's just perfect because now it's beginning to come into balance, you see, because the deer are diminishing by disease and other things. They're bringing themselves into balance. And however it is, it's always just where it needs to be to take the next step. And then it's just where it needs to be to take the next step. So think of the process as a whole set of balances like an ecosystem like our environment and yes things get out of balance you get some things going on that are very out of balance in the ecosystem but the system 
is made so it always tends toward balance and writing itself. So it's always in a state of fixing itself, just the way it's supposed to do it, just the way it was designed to do it. It's always in the process of becoming, and that becoming is always on the road to growing up. So even if we make bad choices for a while, we're still on that process toward growing up and and de-evolving is something that will make it easier for us to turn around and evolve again because it'll show us the error of our ways. We de-evolve and things get worse and worse for us. So in that sense, the process is self-balancing. And in that self-balancing, self-writing, it's always just perfect just the way it is. Not in the content, but in the structure of the system and how it works. It's always in the process of nudging things in the direction that they need to go. That's the nature of evolution. Evolution is a process that has no plan, but at the same time has a way of always moving forward. Just, you know, as it, as it can in the most optimum way possible. Uh, yeah, thank you, Tom. That's sort of what I realized. It, to, to me, it almost seems like there's only perfection and somehow that perfection keeps evolving to be just more perfect, even though it was already perfect. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's just what yeah. I'm saying. yeah, there's more, per, there's more perfection in the process than there is in the content. Yeah. And as something similar that I realized that also kind of confused me is that there was this realization that there's only love and even even the, all the fear is somehow an expression of love. Like love is more fundamental and somehow the, the substance of fear. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, that's what it felt like to me. Well, I would say that like somewhat differently, but is the, the love is not something you have to go out and attain somewhere. What you have to do is just get rid of the fear. You see, if you get rid of the fear, what's left is love. So it's not like you need this special, you know, way of going about producing fear. I mean, producing love. All you have to do is get rid of the fear. So love is there. Love is the fundamental thing. Yes, it is. And the fear, the fear is not love itself. The fear is really the absence of love. But you get rid of that, you get rid of that fear and what's left is love. It's not like, well, you got rid of your fear. Now you have to build some love. It doesn't work that way. Now you got rid of your fear. You are love. That's what's, that's what's left once you peel the fear away. So it's the love that is the core fundamental thing. It's the fear that's the, that represents the, the poor choice, the, you know, the self-centered, uh, attitude. And what it does is it gets in your way and just causes trouble. And as you, Learn that if you want your life to be full of joy and peace and happiness, getting rid of the fear is the way that happens. It's not going out and finding love. It's getting rid of the fear is what let love happens, makes love happen, or lets love happen, I guess, is a better way. So you're getting the right data. You're just having trouble translating that data into metaphors that you can use in language. But I think that's the metaphor. That's the data that you were getting. That love is the core. It's the fundamental thing. It's it's the it's the natural 
way of being. And then you've got this fear that uh, just masks the love, gets in the way of the love. And if you get rid of that fear, we are love. That's the core thing. That's the true existence of us. But the fear is a real thing. It's not like the fear is really some sort of love. That's very confusing. The fear isn't some sort of love at all. The fear is uh, is a blemish on the face of that love that you need to let go of. But love is the fundamental. Okay, yeah, thank you. That that clears yeah. things up. It's a good yeah. to know that the the sense that I got is is valid. It's just a bit confusing to put into language, I guess. That's typically the way it is. When you have those very, I don't know what to call it, very moving experiences, very dramatic experiences, they run so deep and are so powerful that it's really hard to put them into words. And as we struggle to put them into words, typically we say, well, that's sort of the way it felt, but that doesn't quite feel right. You know, that's a little confusing or whatever. And that's just a struggle to find the right words to say it. But all of the things you felt were right. That is the way it is. It is perfect in the sense that in any particular time, everybody has a nudge to nudge them in a, you know, has an opportunity, has a way to succeed, has a way to take the next step up. But we have free free will choice. And we can not take that opportunity to grow up. We can take one to de-evolve if we want. But the system always is there with a opportunity for us to move forward. So it's the perfect system. We just have to grow up. Okay, thanks a lot, Tom. That's very helpful. All right. <clears throat> Thank you, Eric. Uh, Carolyn has another question. Looks like you're going to have to write that book sooner than you thought, Tom. <laughs> um, <laughs> what? I would like to know why a lot of women have the need to please others and how to overcome that need. Well, it just depends on your perspective, Carolyn. Um, women do have a certain set of needs to please others, part of their instincts, part of their culture. That's just you know, kind of the way it is here in this culture at this time uh, and with our instincts. It's not that you really want to get rid of those needs. You just need to, let's say, uh, reinterpret them into the need to be helpful, the need to care, the need to lower your entropy, the need to become love. It's not so much that you have a need to to please so much as you should have a need to help. You see, a need to please often has to do with an ego. You feel like you need to please because if you don't please, then there's a problem. You're not doing it right. You see, if you're not pleasing, if you don't please somebody, then it's because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not being who you're supposed to be. So there's a fear tied to that. And as long as you have that sense of of uh, insecurity or a sense maybe of even being inadequate, then you'll have a fear of not doing it right, that you other people need you to please them, but you don't necessarily feel like that's the path to go or you feel like you're being pushed into it or the culture makes you want to do that or feel that way. but you need to let all that 
go. Don't overthink the problem. Just be who you are. Be authentic. Please who you feel like pleasing and let the rest go. Own it and see what happens. If what happens is your life gets turned upside down, well, then ask, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And is my fact that I please some and don't please others, is that because of my ego? Is it all about me and what I get, or is it not? Is it something else? You see, those are things to learn. But if you don't become authentic first, then it's very difficult to learn those things. You're just always stuck in this process of you're feeling pushed one way and you'd rather go another, or you don't like the being pushed. As I said before, nobody likes to be pushed. If you feel that big hand of social convention reaching out and pushing you in a way that you don't really want to go, then you have a tendency to push back. And then you just are in this being pushed, pushed back, being pushed, pushed back, and that gets tedious after a while, and that's why you want to quit. You say, I just want to get off this merry-go-round and, you know, go someplace else. I don't, uh, you know, I don't feel I belong here. Well, you're stuck in that spot unless you get authentic. When you're authentic and you please who you wish to please, why you wish to please them, be that way. Let the chips fall where they may. But then look back and see what you've done and what you've influenced and how that's worked. And then make an assessment. Was that your ego? Were you pleasing yourself to please your ego or not? Or were you pleasing yourself because that was the right thing to do because you're a caring, loving person? You see, you can please people and be an enabler of bad behavior. And you can please people and help them get through a hard situation. So whether you're helping, whether you're enabling, whether you're hurting, it's hard to make that choice if you just stay stuck in the middle between being pushed and pushing back. That's not a productive place. That's a place that's a trap that most people find themselves in. They're stuck between their instincts, their culture, and and uh, their beliefs. And that's an unpleasant place. So get authentic first. Find out who's the real you. Who do you want to please? Who do you don't want to please? And why? And once you find out why, think, is that my ego? Is it just about me feeling good and doing what I want? And I want things to be the way I want them. And if they're the way I want them, then I'm pleased. They're not the way they want them. I want them, then I'm not pleased. Well, that's just ego. It's all about you. But if it's not all about you, if it's about other, then you're doing it right. If it is all about you and not about other, then you're serving your ego. But you can't really make those choices and understand what those choices are and what your motivation is unless you first get authentic and just be who you are because that will let it all out. You won't be the I'm trying to be who everybody thinks I should be because that's not a good place to be in. That's acting your life, not being, not living your life. And that's not a place where you can make progress. So I'd say find out who you are, become authentic. Do what you think is best and right. Be the best person you can be and then look and see what happens. Are you leaving, uh, you know, chaos in the wake? You know, or you got all sorts of people unhappy. Well, if it is, you have to look at that. Maybe they need to be unhappy. Maybe that's their lesson, but maybe it's just your ego or maybe not. 
You see, to answer those questions, you have to change something. If you're stuck in the, in the push, being pushed and pushing back phase, that just is annoying. And you, you don't grow much from that. You just get more and more sullen and more and more jaded and more and more ready to throw up your hands and say, this, this isn't working. And, um, that's not a good place to be. Carolyn is in listen-only mode, so oh, if she okay. would like another question, she can She'll type it in. <laughs> She'll see. have to write it out. But I will, um, I'll proceed with another question that I have. Uh, this is a question from one of the MBT forum users, and it's interesting because it... Um, Asks and uh, refers to Matrix Vissen's Seeing Without Eyes documentary. It's, uh, it says, I started watching Matrix Vissen's videos about seeing without eyes and I'm quite surprised. I mean, it's perfectly logical within MBT. But still, my question is this. Can something like this work with language translation? Like, for instance, one person speaking his native language, French, and the second one hearing the message in his native language, English. If this is possible, now this is putting you on the spot. Why didn't Tom use this skill in his seminars in Germany and Spain? <laughs> didn't want to put translators out of work or didn't want to attract attention to himself. But it's an interesting thought. And... Um, this seeing without—I just should mention the seeing without eyes uh, documentary that Oliver did concerns Evelyn and her, <coughs> sorry, and her program um, that she teaches to children and adults to see without eyes. Um, Tom is coming to Stuttgart, Germany. I should mention on March 17th, and he will uh, be in. He will be introducing Evelyn, who does this program, Seeing Without Eyes, and there will be a demonstration of that by some of the children that are in the documentary. And also, um, he will be explaining how some of this <coughs> sorry, is done, according to MBT. And after that, a wide-open discussion. This is an all-day thing, so please look at... Uh, and March 17th, please look at mbtevents.com. If you're interested, if you're in that area. All right. Let's okay. go back to that question, Tom. <laughs> All right. All right. Let me, let me address that question. Uh, you're confusing two different things here. When you can see without eyes, that's getting data out of a database. That's what remote viewing is, getting data out of a database. And you can get that data out of the database that is very current, such that, like the little girl in that video, you can play an air hockey game with your eyes covered where you can't see anything, but you can hit that little puck that's zipping around on the board very accurately just because you're getting the data of what's going on and where that puck is out of the database. Okay, so that is one thing. You're getting data that is in a database that's non-physical to us. Okay, now when you speak a language, that's a physical thing. Okay, you move your mouth, you uh, make the air, uh, you know, flutter in certain ways that makes the eardrum flutter in certain ways, and the brain interprets those fluctuations in terms of language. And 
you need to know how to decode the language. And the way you decode it is by learning, you know, what those sounds mean and the syntax and the vocabulary of that language. And all of that is taking place here in the physical reality. It's not something that's information or data that's available. So that's a different sort of process. Now, in traveling around in the larger conscious system, you'll notice that you can communicate there, and then you can translate it into your own language. But it's not really that you hear it in your language. You're not hearing it in your language and then translating it. Well, let's put it this way. Sometimes you can hear it, and sometimes you do hear it in your own language. The system can do that as well. But for the most part, you are getting telepathic messages. You just get the content. You get the information. You take that information and translate it into your language, and then you can talk to somebody about the experience you had. You see? So the the telepathy that goes on between beings is just concept to concept. It's the basic information. It's metaphorical. So we speak in terms of metaphors, not in terms of words. Your dreams tend to be in terms of metaphors, not in terms of literal events, but rather metaphorical events. All telepathy tends to be in terms of metaphors. We get the information, and then we translate it into whatever language is ours. You translate that information into French or English or German or Portuguese or anything else. You can just translate it to your own language, but it starts as a concept, an idea of yours. You think in terms of language. So when you get information, those concepts, those ideas, you have to have language to think in terms of those. You process in terms of language. That's uh, kind of the way we, the way we work. So it's a little different thing. No, I, I can't, uh, you know, speak German, uh, because of a connection through the non-physical. That's not it. German is a physical. It's a language here in the, in PMR. It's not in the, it's not in the database. In the database, we just have information that we can all translate into our own language. All right. Um, one more question we have time for. We need to end this pretty much on time as we've got something else, some other uh, interviews here. One more question from Ingo. My question relates to entropy in, compar- in comparison to our computer science. When we speak of entropy in informatics, low entropy means bits contain more information, and high entropy means that bits have less information. Is this principle, outside of our simulation, the same when a conscious mind makes good decisions and faces the unpleasant decisions that this information adds to its conscious mind, and that fear is a lack of information or experience in a technical sense? Yes, that's... That is correct. Um, when we talk about um, entropy and information systems, we talk about um, taking bits that are random and moving those into some sort of structure or order creates information. And as there's less structure and order and there's more randomness introduced, then there's less information. 
when it comes to growing up, low entropy, uh, creating that more information. It's not just creating information for information's sake. It's creating useful information. When that information allows us to build other things on it and it's more useful, then it's lower entropy. It has purpose. It has, uh, it has other, uh, other, it has possibilities. All of that is, is a lower entropy. So yes, that's, that is correct. Um, that same idea of, uh, less information is higher entropy. More information is lower entropy is the same in all information systems, be it consciousness or be it a, you know, our desktop computer. It works the same way. Now our consciousness is evolving. So it's in the process of trying to continually lower, lower its entropy. And of course, as you heard me talk about before, lowering entropy in a social system turns out to be caring. Turns out to be love. It turns out to be, you know, support for each other, uh, sharing. That produces a low entropy uh, configuration to a social system. So that's why we make this association that, that, uh, Consciousness lowers its entropy in the process of becoming love, and that love is the nature of a low-entropy consciousness. That's because consciousness is a social system. It's not just any information system. You can have an information that is not part of a social system, and then that love connection isn't going to work. It's only there because consciousness is a social system. What consciousness does is interacts. It communicates. It connects. It's being a social system is intrinsic to the nature of consciousness itself. Um, so just a plain information system doesn't necessarily have that love connection, but otherwise it does have the same entropy connection. All right. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, everyone, for being here, submitting your questions. For those of you whose questions have not been answered um, and you've submitted them um, a couple of times ago, a couple of tries ago, uh, they will be answered all of them first next time around. So on the 51st Fireside Chat, those questions will go first. And we thank and appreciate everyone who showed up and asked such great questions today. Thank you for being with us.